0: Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Luke chapter 10. We're going to do verses 25 through 42 today, which will cover two famous gospel stories. The first is the parable of the Good Samaritan, and the second is the story of Mary and Martha, Martha cooking and Mary listening to Jesus. Our previous audio, we saw Jesus send out the 70 disciples in Judea, and He received them back with great joy, rejoicing that their names were written in the book of life. And that's our context here. We're in Jesus' Judean ministry. So we'll start with verse 25 in Luke 10. Just then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that question was asked of Jesus by the rich young ruler. You recall the famous story, it's in two parallel passages, Mark ten seventeen and Matthew nineteen sixteen. Mark ten seventeen says this, as he was setting out, as he Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man, this is the rich young young ruler, ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Notice the good teacher, gotta be good, good, good. So Jesus deals with the rich young ruler on the basis of his legalism. Matthew 19:16. just then someone, the rich young ruler, came up and asked him, Teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? So you see the, the works righteousness flavor of your typical Jewish leader, Jew, especially the Pharisees. So the Pharisee comes up and says, Teacher, in Luke 10, verse 25, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he's got that same mindset. Now you notice this expert in the law, also known as a scribe, Most of the scribes were Pharisees, so I'm going to just assume he was a Pharisee. It might be uh, an erroneous assumption, but it's a reasonable assumption. So this lawyer type was testing him. Now, there's two options on how he was testing him. He could have been testing him in order to argue with Jesus about what was eternal life. That's the NIV study Bible mentions that. Or he could have been testing him just to see what kind of teacher he was. Jameson Foster Brown says he could have been testing him and quote, no quote, in no hostile spirit, yet with no tender anxiety for light on that question of questions, but just to see what insight this great Galilean teacher had. In other words, he just tested him out. and said, well, is this a teacher or not? Is he a good teacher? So he asked a standard question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Or it could be he was just trying to trip Jesus up, saying, I don't believe you got the answer to what eternal life is. Well, either way, it was a friendly conversation. It seems to me it was. And so... Jesus answers the question as we, as we go on. Now, let's talk about this expert in the law. Sometimes they're called scribes because a lawyer and a scribe were the same thing. A scribe was an official. It was a profession. A scribe was a teacher. He wrote down the laws for the courts. He was like a notary. If you needed uh, something notarized or if you needed a document copied, he was like a secretary. It was a profession. And since they were so good at dealing with the law and writing the law down, they came to be experts in the law. And so people would hire them to be teachers. And then they became sort of legal know-it-alls. And, of course, that was perfect for a Pharisee who, that was a, a Pharisee was not a profession, but a Pharisee was a school of teaching in Israel at that time. It was logical that those two that that profession and that school of thought would marry each other. They fit very well. So a scribe and a lawyer and a Pharisee, typically the same thing. We know that a scribe and an expert in the law are exactly the same thing because there are two scriptures that, that recount the same event and use the two different terms in the same context. Matthew twenty-two thirty-five, and one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. And in Mark twelve twenty-eight, one of the scribes approached when he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well. He asked him, which command is the most important of all? So those two parallel passages, one uses the term expert in the law and one scribe. So a scribe is an expert in the law. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus was an expert in the law too. We often think of him in the context of his miracles and the parables he spoke. But he was an expert in the law, too. And you're not going to trip him up on anything. I mean, he was talking about it when he was 12 years old in the temple with experts in the law. Luke 10, verse 26 through 27. What is written in the law? He, Jesus, asked him, asked the scribe. How do you read it? Jesus asked him. Verse 27. He, the scribe, answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And that's a pretty good answer. How did he come up with such a good answer? Well, because that was standard. It was part of their phylacteries. They wrote those verses down, the Old Testament verses, which I'll give you in just a minute. They wrote them down and put them in their phylacteries, those wooden boxes that they strapped to their wrist and their forehead, and they recited those verses every day. So those were well-known verses. And so that's how it would be so so well it was so easy for him to answer Jesus' question. Now, Jesus actually used those words to answer a different question at a different time of a different lawyer, according to the NIV study bible and Jameson Fawcett and Brown. For example, Matthew 22, verse 35 through 40, and one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to te- to test him: Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? He, Jesus, said to him the expert in the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. So Jesus had taught that earlier, or at least, I don't, I'm not sure it was early, it might have been later actually, but at a different time. Mark 12:28 through 32, one of the scribes approached when he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? This is the most important, Jesus answered. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. So you see, this idea was was in the forefront of Jesus' teaching as it was in the Jews' teaching too because it was written in their phylacteries and they recited it every day. Now, which verses were written in the phylactery, and which verses were the scribe scribe quoting? Deuteronomy 6:5 says this: "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength." Leviticus 19:18: "Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself." I am Yahweh. Now, we often think that "love your neighbor as yourself" comes from the New Testament. It's actually a quote. From the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.18 is a great verse to mark in your Bibles. It's quoted a lot. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it's also a good verse to counteract the unfortunate tendency that people have to think that the Old Testament is nothing but wrath and hatred and killing and all that kind of stuff. No. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Jesus quoted Leviticus 19.18 and another place in Matthew 19, 19, which I haven't mentioned, honor your father and your mother and love your neighbor as yourself. So this is common Christian teaching as well as common Jewish teaching. Luke 10, 28. You've answered correctly. He, Jesus, told him, the expert in the law, do this and you will live. Now remember the expert in the law said, what must I do to get saved? And Jesus said, you got to do this. You can't just recite it every day. You can't just talk it. you got to walk it. And... As you can imagine, the Pharisee is going to think, I don't think I can do that. Love my neighbor as myself. I don't think I can do that. And we'll see that's exactly what he was thinking. John Gill says this. John Gill says that Jesus was subtly showing him he could not do what the law required when he said, do this and you will live. But at least formally, the expert in the law said the right thing. Luke 10, verse 29, but wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So now he's going to start quibbling on the neighbor. Now, this is the way I take this, is the man knew he couldn't love all of his neighbors. He, he might love the nice ones, but the evil ones, the bad ones, the non-Jewish ones. Now, that's a, that's a different story. He didn't think he could do that. Now, and so he wanted to justify himself in this way by saying that he was doing what was proper in order to earn eternal life. I think that's what it is. However, unfortunately, I find myself opposed by four commentators who say that he was a proud lawyer Pharisee trying to justify himself to the crowd. He's preening himself before the crowd. So, okay, okay, you just talked about loving your neighbor. Well, who's your neighbor? He's going to quibble, going to logic chop a little bit in front of the crowd. I don't think so. Who says that? John Gill, the NIV Study Bible, Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown. So, you know, I'm a minority here. But I really think that what's happening here is that he knows in himself, because he doesn't have confidence and security and peace in his heart about his relationship with God. He's trying to say that he has done enough to have eternal life by loving the neighbors he wants to love. Now, let's look into the Jewish mindset here. A typical Jewish rabbi thought of his fellow Israelites as his neighbors, but not Gentiles. Here's a quote from John Gill. So the Jews commonly interpret, interpret the word neighbor, either of one that is related to them, to them in nature, that is near akin to them in blood, like a relative, or that professes the same religion as they do, and whom they call a neighbor in the law, and so they explain the passage now cited, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, that is, who is thy neighbor in the law, in other words, a Jew. For they will not allow a Gentile, no, not no, not even a proselyte of the gate, to be a neighbor. Here's another interpret, rabbinic interpretation from John Gill: When a man sees one of them, the Gentiles, one of the Gentiles fall into the sea, he need not take him up, as it is said, Leviticus 19:16, Neither shalt thou, neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor. But this is not thy neighbor. The law said basically don't hurt your neighbor stand against the blood of thy neighbor it's king james i think for don't hurt your neighbor but the rabbi said "Uh uh-uh but this gentile who fell into the sea this is not your neighbor he's a gentile adam clark agrees with me on this he said the lawyer knew he had been nice to jews so he thought he was justified thought he was going to get eternal life luke 10 verse 30 jesus is going to deal with this nonsense right now jesus took up the question and said A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. Now, this famous Jericho road from Jerusalem to Jericho was 17 miles long, according to the NIV study Bible. It descended from Jerusalem 2,500 feet up in the air to 800 feet below sea level at Jericho, according to the NIV study Bible. It's rocky desert country. I can attest to that. I've been on the road, on the modern highway, in, through that area, and that's exactly the perfect description of it. Rocky and desert. There was plenty of opportunity for robbers to waylay defensive travelers on that road, and so Jesus was talking about a common occurrence. It was the most public road in all Judea, Adam Clark says, the grand thoroughfare between the two cities. The courses of priests who did their two-week service in Jerusalem, they would live in Jericho, and then they would walk those 17 miles to, to Jerusalem in order to perform their two-week service, and then, then they would go back to Jericho. Lightfoot, the famous Puritan scholar, and Clark quotes him for this. Says that twelve thousand priests were said to reside at Jericho. I don't know if that's true, and I was a lot of priests down there. So this is a, a, the story that the Jews could relate to. Jericho was the second city of Israel. Now, some people say this is not a parable but an actual occurrence. Adam Clark and John Gill. I don't. I think it was a parable. I think because Jesus used parables so much, and because it just sounds like one. It's got a great point. Now, this robber, this man who was stripped, why was he stripped? Well, it could have been just gratuitous violence, or it could have been because the clothes were stolen because they were vaguely. These are my two speculations. I don't know. The man who was robbed was probably a Jewish man because that was who traveled on that road mostly. Luke 10, verse 31 through 33. A priest, this is a Jewish priest, happened to be going down that road. When he saw him the man beaten up, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Verse 33, but a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. So you got three guys passing the beat-up traveler. you got a priest, you got a Levite, and you got a Samaritan. We need to describe all three of the, of the passers-by. As you know, I'm sure in Israel, the priest had to be of the family of Aaron, and that family of Aaron was of the tribe of Levi. If you offered sacrifices at the temple, you had to be of the family of Aaron. If you served in the temple, you had to be the tribe of Levi. Now, Aaron's family was of the tribe of Levi, but they never called them Levites because that would confuse things. A Levite is a member of the tribe of Levi who was not in the family of Aaron. So Aaron, Aaronites, if you, if you will, were special Levites. They were the special family of Levites who could offer, offer sacrifices. Levites did. They couldn't offer sacrifices, but they were required to work in the temple. They would clean the utensils. They would perform police duty and guard the temple. They would sing that kind of thing. And they were the big shots in Israel. And that's why Jesus was using them, because they would be more likely to have the haughty, arrogant attitude as, I know it all, I know the law, and I'm justified before God because of who I am. On the other hand, a Samaritan. Now, Samaria was that region that separated Judea from Galilee. Judea in the south, Galilee in the north. And they were considered half-breeds, according to my NIV study Bible. That's because they were half-breeds. What had happened was, in 721, I think it was, when the Assyrians wiped out the northern ten tribes of Israel, the Assyrians, according to their policy, they would take half a part of the native population of the conquered territory, and they would deport them and scatter them through eastern provinces of the Assyrian Empire in the Tigris-Euphrates va- Valley and maybe even over into Persia. And then they would bring people in the eastern provinces and bring them back and scatter them through the conquered territories. So there were a bunch of Persians and and Middle Easterners there that were, put, that were uh, imported into Samaria. And so they naturally interbred. The idea of this was to break the ethnic co- cohesion of the Conquered territory, break their spirit, so they wouldn't revolt against the nasty Assyrians. So they were half-breeds, physically. But not only physically, but religiously they were. They were half-Jewish. They, for example, accepted the authority of some of the Old Testament, namely the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books. But they didn't accept the rest of the Hebrew scriptures as authority like the Orthodox Jews did. They also had their own special temple at Mount Gerizim. Remember the Samaritan woman said, we worship up here at Mount Gerizim instead of Jerusalem. And so you can imagine what the Jews thought about that. They were polluting their, their holy religion, and they were screwing things up. And so Jews and Samaritans were openly hostile with each other. They didn't like each other at all. So here we have two of the highest elements of Jewish society, the priest and the Levites passing by with no compassion, this beat-up man on the road. Now, not helping that man was a flat breach of their own law, according to Adam Clark. Quoting Deuteronomy 22, 1 through 4, If you see your brother's ox or sheep straying, you must not ignore it. Make sure you return it to your brother. If your brother does not live near you or you don't know him, you are to bring the animal to your home to remain with you and your brother comes looking for it, then you can return it to him. Do the same for his donkey, his garment, or anything your brother has lost and you have found. You must not ignore it. If you see your brother's donkey or ox falling down on the road, you must not ignore it. and You must help him lift it up. So the idea is that the law is required to help a donkey or an ox lying down by the side of the road. Well, surely a man is worth more than that, and he should be helped. Here's another verse, Exodus 23, 4-5, that shows that the priest and Levite completely violated the law by not helping that man. If you come across your enemy's stray ox or donkey, you must return it to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you lying under its load, you and you want to refrain from helping it, you must help with it. So if you apply that verse properly, the priest and Levite should have helped this hurt man. Now these... This priest and Levite could have used some possible excuses to pass by the hurt man. They could have said, well, it's not safe here. There's a road that robbers are on all the time. I've got to go by. They could have said, well, that Samaritan's so beat up, he's past recovery. There's no use stopping here. Or we better not stop and help that man. People might suspect us of robbing the Samaritan. All kinds of excuses that trumped what little humanitarian impulse these Jewish leaders might have had. But by happy contrast, the Samaritan did go over and help the man, wounded man lying on the side of the road. We read in verses 34 and 35, he, the Samaritan, went over to him, the man lying in the road, and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Now, denarii was a day's wages, and so when the innkeeper was given two denarii, that would put a man up in an inn for about two months, according to the NIV study Bible, which is plenty of time for the beat-up man to recover. That That was very generous of this Samaritan. Why did he pour olive oil and wine on his wounds? Apparently, this was a common medicine for fresh wounds. I can imagine it would be. The alcohol in the wine would kill infection. The olive oil might ease the pain, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Anyway, he bound up his wounds. We go to Luke 10, verse 36 and 37. Jesus is talking. He's asking the lawyer Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he, the lawyer, said. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. In other words, don't just talk about it, but do it. Don't just talk about it, but show mercy to everyone. Not just Jews, but to everyone. That's a simple point of the parable. That's one reason this parable is so, so famous, it's easy to understand. A neighbor, according to the NIV study Bible, is not one who is merely stated to be so. He must show it by his actions. So Jesus turns the question. The former question is, who is my neighbor? And, but the real question is, who is the man who shows love? Who is the man who shows love? That's who your neighbor really is. Now, notice how the lawyers answered in verse 37 when Jesus asked who was the, who was the neighbor of the three the, the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy to him. It has been pointed out that that is, there was a circumlocution. Instead of saying the Samaritan who showed mercy on him, he said, the one. And apparently this was because saying Samaritan, the word Samaritan, was not something a good Jew could do. They hated each other so bad. It's hard for a Jew to say a nice thing about a hated Samaritan. So he says, well, the one. <laughs> but he did admit that it was it was the Samaritan should be that it was a Samaritan was more merciful than a Jew that was a hard thing for an expert in the law to admit and he did Jesus brought him around to the truth all right let's finish up Luke chapter 10 with another story Luke 10 verse 38 while they were traveling he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home that village is Bethany which is about two miles from Jerusalem. We know that from John 11:1. Now a man was sick, Lazarus, from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. John 11:18 says this. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. So that's where we are now, in the home of Mary and Martha in Lazarus. Now, Martha appears to be the older of the two sisters because she seems like she's kind of bossy, kind of bossing people around, so people speculate she's the oldest one. She did seem to be in charge. Verse 39 through 40, she, that's Martha of Bethany, had a sister named Mary, that's Mary of Bethany, who also who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, and she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. Now sitting at the Lord's feet, Mary was, that was common. Disciples would sit at the feet of their master. John Gill says this shows Mary's great affection for Christ, her humble deportment and close attention. Now, think of how rude Martha was. She was rude both to Mary and to Jesus. She was rude to Mary because she didn't bother to ask Mary directly. She said, Jesus, you tell her to give me a hand. She was kind of pulling rank on Mary, getting the big rabbi to tell her little sister what to do. That was rude. That was not not Martha's finest hour. She was also rude toward Jesus. She is implicitly rebuking Jesus for tying Martha up with his teaching while she's out there slaving in the kitchen. Now, Adam Clark puts in a word in favor of Martha. He says that her character stands unimpeachable in the gospel. She was entertaining the Son of God and his disciples, and wouldn't you want to sort of have a good feast for the Son of God and his disciples? She was influenced to give this feast by liberality and benevolence, not by parsimony and covetousness. Her work was good, what she was doing. But Jesus' point was not that Mary's work was bad, but that listening to Jesus was better. That was his point. Luke 10, verse 41 through 42. The Lord answered her, answered Martha. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice and it will not be taken away from her. Now the repetition of the word Martha Martha there, the repetition expresses great intimacy and fellowship, John Gill says. And that's probably true. He's not rebuking her in a harsh way. He says you were worried and upset about many things. In other words, the entertainment here is pretty big. John Gill says that what Jesus is doing here is saying that he would have been satisfied with much less entertainment if you had no so it's to keep things in a so that they could focus on the more important things, and so that Martha's time would not have been taken up. And if Martha had made a smaller feast, then she wouldn't have needed Mary's help. So Jesus is gently rebuking Martha here. Jesus says in verse 42, One thing is necessary. Now I always took that that to mean that the one thing that was necessary was that it was necessary to listen to Jesus' teaching, which is more necessary than fixing the food. Some ancient commentators have an interesting take on this verse. They say that, Jesus is talking about meats of di- dishes of meat. You're worried and upset about many things, many dishes of meat in your big back, but one thing is necessary. All that's necessary is one dish of meat. Well, that's kind of interesting. I'm pretty well. Actually, John Gill believes that, but I don't think so. I think it was the, well, he mentions it, let's say, that way. But the real reason, the one thing that was necessary, is that Martha should hear the Word of God, and Mary should hear the Word of God. That's what's necessary. Now, Jesus is not disparaging waiting on tables. Of course not. But by comparison, waiting on tables is not as good as listening to Jesus' words. Jesus finishes up. After saying that Mary had made the right choice, he said, It will not be taken away from her. What will not be taken away from her? The ability to listen to Jesus, because even after Jesus died, Mary could still hear the words of Jesus through the words of his apostles, for example, and she could continue to be taught in the Lord. But on the other hand, the implication is, Mary, your ability to serve me food, that is going to be taken away because I'm not going to live much longer. Ladies and gentlemen, we have now finished Luke chapter 10. We will take up Luke chapter 11 in the next audio in which we will deal with the subject of prayer, the first 13 verses of chapter 11, where Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer. Hope you enjoyed this audio.